Lord and His ministry. And I think it's a good exercise for us not just to wonder maybe what would I have done or how would I have responded if I, if I were there then. But as we go through these different groups of people and the different responses they have to the Lord, maybe it's better to ask ourselves, who do I relate to in the story? And how am I relating and responding to Jesus now? Because I think that's what we need to do with the Lord's Word, to, to think about the context and to always read it in the context and say, what's going on and, and, and what were the dynamics and what was the Lord doing and saying? And how, but also, allow me to enter into the story. Because the story is continuing. Jesus has risen from the dead. He is alive and well. He's still moving 2,000 years later by the power of His Holy Spirit through His church. How am I responding to Jesus now? So we'll start. We're going to read section by section. We're going to start with Mark 7. I mean, Mark chapter 3, verse 7 through 12. It says, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake. And a large crowd from Galilee followed. When they heard all he was doing, many people came to him from Judea, from Judea Jerusalem, Idumea, and the regions across the Jordan, around Tyre and Sidon. Because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him. For he had healed many, so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. Whenever the evil spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. But he gave them strict orders not to tell who he was. And again, that should be understand as obvious, understood as those who are possessed by demons falling down before the Lord, confessing him as the Son of God, and then the Lord would drive them out. So the first group of people that we have are the crowds. Uh, Jesus is very mindful of the timing of his ministry. Last week, Daniel went through the latter part of chapter 2 in Mark and the early part of chapter 3 where there was this ongoing conflict with the religious establishment. And he, he taught about the fact that Jesus is our Sabbath as they quarreled over this idea of what he would do on the Sabbath. And at the, the end of those verses, we see in chapter 3, verse 6, that there's already talk of finding a way to kill Jesus. But again, Jesus knows his timing, knows what he needs to do, knows what he needs to accomplish before that happens. So we see him, at least for the moment, withdrawing from the pressures and threats that are coming from the religious establishment. But as he withdraws from them, it's only to be met by another large multitude of people. And they're coming from every direction. And Jesus gladly ministers to them. This crowd is likely growing in its diversity. Again, we, we know that Jesus is Jewish. He's coming as the Jewish Messiah. But it seems that my, uh, Mark is kind of giving us a clue that as he's talking about some of the places that, that these people are coming from, that there's probably Gentiles, non-Jews, also incorporated in this crowd. 
at this point in Jesus' ministry, we're, in a, we're, we're becoming accustomed to large crowds coming after Jesus. Kind of everyday people. When the religious hierarchy are, are already plotting his death, it's the common people that are thronging to him. Our Alan Cole says, it is a marked biblical stress that in spiritual matters, the plain judgment of the simple heart is a truer guide than the wrangling of the learned. Now what the crowd gets right, at least at this point, is what we might call their approval and their pursuit of Jesus. Or at the very least, their curiosity that drives them to see what he's all about. Yet, while this attraction, what we might call attraction, is commendable, we need to have a little bit of discernment about the nature and the character of the crowds. For curiosity about Jesus, and even attraction to Jesus, doesn't necessarily equal genuine faith. We can notice that there's a distinction even in the early verses here that distinguishes between his disciples and the crowds. By and large, the problem with the crowd is that they're generally more concerned with what they can get from Jesus than they are about true discipleship. Even here we get this picture of this crowd being very aggressive uh, so much so that Jesus asked for a boat. And sometimes he would teach from a boat. But here it, it, we get this picture of the crowd pressing in so that they can touch him and be healed. They knew what they, Jesus could do. They knew that even to touch him could mean physical healing. So it, it seems that in this moment that Jesus is saying that he could be pushed right into the water. Because the crowds were so aggressive to, to trying to touch him. So he says, get a boat ready in case I'm pushed, I'm shoved right into the water. There's a, a nature of the crowd that, that tends to be fringe. That, that tends towards a, a, a fickleness and a shallowness in their attachment to Jesus. And you see this later on in Jesus' ministry. As Jesus' teaching becomes particularly difficult to swallow, the crowds dwindle. Many end up leaving Jesus. Jesus knows that. Jesus knows the fickleness of the crowds. He knows that they're, they're kind of hanging on the fringe of curiosity and what they can get out of him. But what's amazing about Jesus is that it doesn't seem to dampen his compassion. Sometimes, you know, people can be curious about Jesus or, or, or want to step into a church community and, and we're questioning their motives and we're questioning what, what they're really seeking and what do they really want to get. And But you know what? This didn't dampen... Jesus' compassion. Jesus looked at the crowds, the gospel tells us, and, and saw a people that were like sheep without a shepherd. He regularly taught them. He regularly healed them. He regularly delivered them. As we see this heightened sense of demonic activity surrounding Jesus. 
Mark emphasizes again that, that Jesus won't receive the testimony of demons. He tells them to be quiet. It's as if, again, he, every single individual person will have to acknowledge who Jesus is, recognize who Jesus is according to his words, according to his deeds. And Jesus also is likely trying to avert misunderstanding of who they wanted Messiah to be because he knew he would not be the Messiah that they expected. He wasn't going to be a Messiah about toppling governments. He was going to be a Messiah that would go to the cross. Even Peter, one of his closest companions, would be one that would say, no way, Lord, that's not going to happen. That's not what Messiah does, but yes, no, that is what Messiah needed to do. The Life Application Bible Commentary says, Christ's kingdom begins not with the overthrow of governments, but with the overthrow of sin in people's hearts. But I think we should ask ourselves here, am I responding like the crowds do to Jesus? Now again, part of this can be good. Part of this can be, hey, I'm seeking, I'm asking questions, I'm wondering who this Jesus is. I'm recognizing a need. And I think Jesus can fulfill that need. Go for it. Pursue. Seek. Be amazed. Be attracted. But let me encourage you, you can't stay there. At some point, a decision has to be made. Am I like the crowds in, in which I, I only seek Jesus for what I can get? Well, I, I, there, there's, there's this thing going on in my life and I need this answered prayer. I need a response to get me out of this situation now. Again, not bad. God wants to come to us with, with all our needs, with all our fears, with all our struggles. But is it then, as soon as the teaching gets tough, as soon as it gets a little, this idea of following Jesus gets a little more demanding, as soon as we start talking about him getting in control and me yielding and surrendering, I'm out. For the crowd, it was easier to kind of stay in the perimeter and press in when they needed healing. But true faith would demand a deeper commitment. True discipleship, a deeper following. Verse 13. Jesus went up on a mountainside, and this is probably the hill surrounding the Sea of Galilee, and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed twelve, designating them apostles, that they might be with him, and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. These are the twelve he appointed, Simon to whom he gave the name Peter, James son of Zebedee and his brother John. To them he gave the name Boanerges, which means sons of thunder. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. So the next group, the first group of the crowds, 
So the next group we have are these 12 men, these disciples, also known as apostles, which means those who would be sent out with a mission. Those who would be sent out with a mission, a message. They're called from the larger group of disciples. It's interesting, Mark kind of names them without a lot of fanfare. We don't have time to go through each one of who each one of these guys are. In fact, some of them we know very little about. It, it, it doesn't actually seem to be the point that we would know everything there is to know about each one of these men. We know more about some than others. Obviously, Peter, James, John. We have some nicknames, some, some names that they're known by. Uh, maybe representing temperament, representing what God knows he's going to do through them. But what we know in general is that they're ordinary laymen. They're not, at this point, specially trained. They're not the scribes in the religious elite. Ordinary laymen, diverse in temperament, diverse in their work and social background, diverse in their lifestyle and politics. And as the story unfolds, we also see that these men are deeply flawed. Deeply flawed. We often find them jockeying for position. Who will be the greatest? We often find them lacking in faith. We often find them oblivious to the deeper meaning of what Jesus is doing and saying. And ultimately, we find them abandon the Lord Jesus in his greatest hour of need. One of them becoming a traitor and betraying him. So what sets these men apart from the crowds? For one, after what Luke, the, Luke tells us in his gospel, that Jesus spent an entire night in prayer. An entire night. Jesus chooses these men. In John 15, 16, Jesus says, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit. Fruit that will last. He chooses 12, like the 12 tribes of Israel. Through them, the intended work of Israel to be heralds of God's kingdom and salvation to the world will be accomplished. And a new people of God, through these 12 laymen, will be formed. You represent that, many of you. A new people of God being formed in real time, real space, starting with these 12 men. The reason that they're chosen is laid out in some simple terms. They're called away from life as they knew it. It seems like there's some, some symbolism here as the Lord is, goes up on the hillside and calls them to himself. And they're called, it says, to that they might be what? With him. So first and foremost, these men are called, this is pretty simple, to be with Jesus. But that's important. If you 
come to Jesus in faith and say, I am ready to cross that threshold. I'm no longer standing on the fringes of the crowd. You are going to be my Lord and my Savior. Your first job is to be with Him. And that doesn't stop. Who are you as a disciple of Jesus? First and foremost, I need to be with Jesus. I need to realize that nothing will come from my efforts. And these men need to realize nothing would come from their efforts apart from communion with and the leadership and the example and the teaching and the power and the authority of Jesus. These 12 men, we, we see that after Pentecost, they're empowered by the Holy Spirit of God. They do amazing things. Like I said, we are a reflection, many of us here, of their work and their faithfulness. But Jesus says in John 15, 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. I want to do great things for God. I do. I want to see God use me. I want to know that, that my life is surrendered to His will. I want to see people saved, don't you? I want to see new disciples. I want to dump people and have them baptized. I want to welcome people into the family of God. My first job is to be with Jesus. Nothing's going to happen apart from that. I need to walk with Him. I need to always be examining my communication with Him, my meditation on His teaching, His Word, His example. Who would benefit from them being with Him? I'm asking you guys. Who benefits from these disciples being with Jesus? What's that? Disciples. The disciples surely do. The people that you to do. Yeah. What's that? Yeah, yeah. What, what's so neat is that they are to be with him, but it's not for their benefit only. It was for the benefit of others who they be sent out to. They're commissioned to preach, to preach this kingdom of God, the kingdom rule of God, the good news of Jesus, the good news that we can come to God through Jesus, be reconciled and forgiven. They are given the authority over evil forces that they might expel those evil forces so that there would be room for the rule of God, right? So they can, they can bring freedom from the ones that were in bondage. But they're chosen, they're called to Him, and they're sent out. It's not just for their benefit. It's for the benefit of others. What does this mean for us? For one, the apostles in no way merit their calling. Man, they, they often make a mess of it. Yeah. 
Some of you get so anxious, and I do too. Boy, we're making a mess of it. Boy, what if we make, you know, this one wrong turn, or we make this one bad decision, and should we meet at the pavilion all summer long? People might go to the chapel and go, where are those people? You know, like, what, what if we make a mess of it? Well, we will sometimes. And God's bigger than our making a mess of it. Amen? Amen. These guys often made a mess of it. And God's like, no. Jesus is still like, no, I called you. Just be with me. Keep following. Keep, I'll train you. Keep trusting in me. And it's going to be for the benefit of others. But they didn't merit their calling. It was a purely a matter of God's grace that they were chosen. Like Israel, they weren't chosen because they were mighty. They were chosen because they were unlikely. That God would show his mighty power through them. But to their credit, they responded in obedience. God just asks you to make the move. To move in faith. To trust him enough that when he calls, you come. And that's what they did. Often scratching your head. And they, they walked intimately with the Lord. And they became, very often clumsily, they became his ambassadors. They shared the good news. They combated evil in the world. You too are called. Only according to God's grace. He will make something out of you. So I don't have all the gifts. I'm not so well spoken. That my, you know, my brain only works here, and I have this handicap and that handicap, and this emotional struggle and this physical struggle, and you know, I didn't get all the schooling and be with him. You two are called to be with him, and that calling is not just for yourself. That calling is to be for the benefit of others. That you would share the love of the Lord. That you would share the service of the Lord. That you would share the gospel. That you would even combat the true evils of the world. The work of Satan in his name and authority. So we have the crowds. We have the apostles. Verse 20. Then Jesus entered a house. Now again, this is probably Peter and Andrew's house again in Capernaum. And again a crowd gathered so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him. That word actually could be arrest. That's the idea that they're going to, in a sense, arrest him, to seize him. They went to take charge of him. For they said, he is out of his mind. That's his family. We're, we're, we're going to think about that a little bit at the end here. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem, it says down, but that's a, they actually traveled north for you geeks that think about, like, why does it say? He actually traveled north, but they went down in elevation. So news has reached Jerusalem. And they say he is possessed by Beelzebub. By the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. So Jesus called them and spoke to them in parables. 
How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man. Then he can rob his house. I tell you the truth. All the sins and blasphemies of men will be forgiven them. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. He is guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying he has an evil spirit. So the third group we have are called the opposition. And typically these were men of high rank in, in the Jewish religious society. It should always sober us that some of the people that most vehemently opposed Jesus were people that considered themselves closest to God. Again, R. Allen Cole says, Every person's danger of spiritual stumbling over Christ comes through that which they take to be their strong point in which they pride themselves. It's an interesting quote. Every person's danger of spiritual stumbling over Christ comes through that which they take to be their strong point in which they pride themselves. That could be knowledge. That could be religious devotion. That, that could be thinking that you have all your doctrine straight and you know the Bible inside and out. That could be uh, good morals, a strong work ethic. Those very things can be the things that become the greatest stumbling block to receiving Christ. Not only do these men accuse Jesus of wrongdoing, but that what he was doing was empowered by evil. Beelzebub. Now there's some different thoughts about exactly what they were saying there. It literally could mean the Lord of the Flies. Uh, it could be a, a, a play on words referring to Baal, Prince Baal. But just think about that, even this idea of the Lord of the Flies. The Lord of Death. The Lord of Rot. The Lord of Decay. The Lord of Filth. The Lord of the place where flies gather. And that's what they're saying Jesus is empowered by to do what he's doing. Now, it's a tired but consistently played out tendency, even for religious people, to call the good of which we are uncomfortable evil. So that not only can we ignore it, but we can oppose it. That's a tricky thing to think about. That God might be doing something good, or there might be someone else doing something good, but it makes me uncomfortable. It goes against my politics. It goes against my 
tight, limited experience. So because it makes me uncomfortable, I will call that good thing evil. And then not only can I ignore it, I can oppose it. We always have to be careful of this tendency with the Lord, with what He will do, with society, how we respond to people, that we don't buy into some of the propaganda that is out there, that we always remember the needs of people come first, that we're not labeling and justifying, dismissing people that are in need. That's, that's wrong. Again, that doesn't fit my political agenda. That, that must be evil. Well, no, maybe it's actually good. And you're calling it evil because it makes you uncomfortable. But it's interesting, even to these adversaries, Jesus reaches out. He gives them a chance through his engagement with them to hear to see, to turn, to repent. It's very interesting. Imagine these guys are, are making these accusations. We don't know exactly who he's saying it to, how loud they're saying it. But then Jesus becomes aware of it. And he says, hey, guys, come here. Just think about that scene for a second. So maybe they're saying out loud. Maybe they're murmuring in the back. Oh, this guy's, this guy's driving out demons by the prince of demons. Hey, guys, why don't you come here? Let's talk. And he asks very simply, he says, how can Satan drive out Satan? It's absurd. Satan would be working against himself. It would be a civil war of evil. And Satan, by nature, destroys. Satan, by nature, wants to kill. Jesus, by nature, has already shown himself to restore, to heal body and soul. The two are completely incompatible. Satan is not opposing himself. Jesus is opposing Satan. It, it, it very well may be that when Jesus talks about entering the house of a strong, the strong man, tying him up, and taking away his possessions, that he is the thief. That the one that they consider the strong man, Satan is the one that Jesus will tie up. It's the one that Jesus will prove stronger than. And those that have been in his bondage, in his house, Jesus says, I'm taking those. I'm freeing those people. They're mine. Amen. Amen. <laughs> I think it's awesome. It's interesting that Jesus says, hey, guess what? I'm a thief. Binding the strong man. Now we know that Satan 
It's not totally done away with yet. But there will be a day, tells us in Revelation 20, that he will be bound for eternity. The Lord is stronger than that strong man. And he is still actively robbing his house. Still actively saving souls that were once under Satan's dominion. What's interesting is these men were getting dangerously close to committing what the Bible talks about as the one unforgivable sin to blaspheme the Holy Spirit. Now, I don't think this should be um, understood as an isolated act. Like some people, some people get afraid, like maybe, maybe accidentally I blaspheme the Holy Spirit. I don't think that is the point. I think this is a persistent state of mind and soul. It's to resist yielding to and acknowledging the power that is behind Jesus, the power of God. It's to distort it in such a way that these men were attributing that work to Satan. And in doing so, they were hardening their hearts. The Holy Spirit is the one that reveals, convicts and reveals that Jesus is the only way. He is the only way to forgiveness. He is the only way to restoration with God. He is the only way for salvation. So if you attribute that work to Satan, what avenue for forgiveness is left? You've just short-circuited the only way to be forgiven. Jesus says, and this is, we miss this sometimes, because an unforgivable sin, we miss this. Jesus says that all sins can be forgiven. <clears throat> Let that sink in for a second. All sins can be forgiven. There's some things I know about myself. There's some things I know about other people that I say, really? And Jesus makes it completely as clear as day. All sins all blasphemies that are committed can be forgiven. Praise God. Amen? That means you are never messed, so messed up that God can't say, debt canceled, white as snow, I receive you. But deny the power of the Holy Spirit and how He reveals Himself and how he reveals Christ to be the only Savior of the world. When you do that, you're cutting off the only avenue of forgiveness. So we might say, are you like any of these men? We have the crowds, we have the apostles, we have the opposition. We're going to say, well, certainly not. <laughs> Nobody wants to think they're like these men. But let me ask you this. Has God been making himself known to you? Has God been pursuing you? And you keep straight-arming him. And you keep hardening your heart. You keep opposing. It's an outside of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit. There is no other way to know God. There's no other way to eternal life. There's no other way to forgiveness. But as long as you have breath, he keeps holding out his hand. 
and keeps offering himself and that spirit that will transform you from the inside out. Finally and briefly, verses 31 through 35. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, Your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and my brothers? he asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God, God's will is my brother and sister and mother. So the final group we have is is Jesus' family. They apparently feel that he's just gone too far. (laughs) And it's their job to rescue Jesus from what he's created. And in fact, they say, it seems that very well may have been them saying, he's out of his mind. He's out of his wits. He and his disciples can't even get a timely dinner for crying out loud. If that's not a reason for mom to move in with force, I don't know what is, right? He didn't eat! (laughs) You better go get him. And we get this really uncomfortable scene. Family was incredibly important in their culture. You, you were tied in your family, had great responsibility to your family. Jesus wasn't denying that. You were known by your family. So they felt like they had a certain claim on Jesus because they were family. And they traveled some 20 miles from Nazareth and they go and the crowd's there and they call and they, they send in word and they're waiting at the door. Tell Jesus we're here. This is getting ridiculous. He's not even taking care of himself. You know, there could be trouble. Look at these Pharisees, they've come up from Jerusalem. Who knows what Rome will do? we got to get him back to Nazareth, get his head straight. Jesus doesn't move. <laughs> he sits there. I wonder how uncomfortable that was. Everybody's like, Jesus, your mom's here. <laughs> And he asked this really awkward question with mom outside, with brothers outside, sisters outside. He said, who's my family? Who's my mom? Who's Who's my brother? Who's my sister? And then he starts eyeing those who are around him. He says, here's my family. Here's my brother. Here's my mother. Here's my sister. And Jesus doesn't deny that the responsibility to our blood family. The Pharisees actually had loopholes that, that allowed people to do that. Jesus condemns them for that. Jesus on the, on the cross is so concerned for Mary that, that he tells John, Hey, John, this is your mom. Mary, this is your son. John, you're going to take care of her. He doesn't deny our responsibility to our families, but but he clues us in that there's a deeper family bond to be found. One that's spiritual. 
one of faith, one of a people who do God's will. Sometimes our own families can be the hardest place to follow Jesus. We may, may not be understood. Sometimes people experience rejection at different levels. Sometimes we're pained by the rejection of people in our families toward Jesus. But even if you're rejected by your own flesh and blood, Jesus says that when you're with me, you've got family. You've got family. Happy Father's Day, God. Your dad turned his back on you. You've got a dad that will never leave you. Never forsake you. Jesus, our elder brother, that was willing to give his life that we might be restored to God. And then he says, let's look around. Who are my brothers? Who are my sisters? Here they are. Siblings in the church, the family of God. We act like siblings sometimes, don't we? <laughs> and we act like siblings. An eternal family meant to care for one another, be faithful to one another, love one another in the name of Jesus. So the crowds pursued but from a non-committal distance. The powerful were threatened and hardened their hearts towards the work of the Holy Spirit. His immediate family, at least at this moment, couldn't even see past his humanity. Later that changed for many of them. They even thought he was losing his mind. But some were true disciples. Not because they were wonderful, but because they were called by God's grace. They were forgiven. They committed to be with Jesus. And they were sent out. Commissioned that their time with Jesus, that their knowing Jesus would be for the benefit of others. And those are the ones that Jesus says are his family. So again, the question is not, who would have I, who would I have been in these scenarios? The crowds, the disciples, the opposition, the family. If I were there, who would I have been? How would I have responded? The question is, how am I responding now? Let's pray. Father God, by the power of your Holy Spirit, please continue to work in our hearts. My guess is when we get 100 people together, we're all going to relate at different levels to the words here this morning. So Lord, do your individual work. Lord, some may be on the fringe and need to commit. Lord, some might be opposing you. Lord, but... You're welcoming us all and to be your family. To be true disciples, to be with you and commissioned by you for the benefit of others. May we be known that way, Lord. The people that want to be with you and the people that are sent out to love and proclaim the love 
that we have found in Jesus, the world around us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.